the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Today we're going to talk with Austin Roos. He's the author of Fake Science, Exposing the Left's Skewed Statistics, Fuzzy Facts, and Dodgy Data. And in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with Ed Heiselmeyer. He's a Preston A. Wells uh, junior senior research fellow uh, on the uh, status of the Senate health care bill. And we'll talk with uh, Brian Riley, the J. Van Andel senior policy analyst in trade policy at the Center for uh, Free Markets and Regulatory Reform. We're going to talk about the White House blueprint for renegotiating NAFTA. We've come a long way as the uh, president has evolved in his thinking on the subject. We'll find out what's going to happen in about 30 days when that renegotiation process begins in earnest. Well, GOP senators failed to agree on a repeal or replacement of Obamacare. Some have likened it to a Game of Thrones in the GOP. Two more Senate Republicans announced opposition to the fledgling GOP health care plan. And we'll talk more about that with Ed Heiselmeyer in the five o'clock hour. But Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, he pulled the plug. He uh, stated that regrettably, it is now apparent that the the effort to repeal and immediately replace the failure of Obamacare will not be successful. End quote. Round two for Mitch McConnell. Once again, Republicans have fallen into the trap of letting the perfect become the enemy of the good. So what has been learned and what are the possible future options? Now, the Patriot Post suggested this list. Republicans struggle mightily to be team players, unlike Democrats, whose instincts cause them to regularly uh, abandon their personal convictions for party loyalty. That might be a bit of an overstatement. Republicans bent toward individualism often proves to thwart party unity. Well, there's certainly the outcome is uh, is accurate. There are myriad factors at play here behind the scenes, dealing in political favors or calculations. Politics in Washington is always much more than meets the eye. Another point. Uh, that leads to the next point, following, uh, follow rather the money. And while politicians often explain their decisions as standing for high-minded principles, more often than not, special interest groups are the overriding motivation. And don't forget the constant concern over re-election. Then there's the fact that health care accounts for roughly one-sixth or one-fifth of the economy. That's a lot of money involved. Next point, McConnell has now called for a straight-up repeal vote of Obamacare, which at face value would be even more difficult to pass. So what's the strategy? McConnell wants to get all Republicans on record to expose most clearly those who are unwilling to repeal the collapsing law, especially the moderates who benefited politically from the repeal when it uh, couldn't actually be done, but are now showing their true colors. Uh, Here's uh, looking at you, Susan Collins. And next point, while Obamacare is indeed collapsing, that doesn't mean it goes away. All the regulations and mandates that are, neg- that are negatively impacting every single American will may, uh, remain in place, continuing 
to act as a weight dragging down the economy and costing billions in taxes and higher premiums. And finally, but not repeal, or rather by not repealing and replacing Obamacare, Republicans have significantly hindered Donald Trump's ability to move aggressively forward in tackling the economy and taxes. That's perhaps most regrettably. Trump has done much thus far in reforming Washington via enacting massive deregulation uh, campaign, but he needs Congress to work toward permanent change. Much of that change depends first on repealing Obamacare. It is indeed frustrating to see how ill-prepared Republicans were to take uh, take over leadership. As Pat Toomey alluded to, to recently, Republicans assumed that Hillary Clinton would win and were simply not prepared to enact a conservative agenda. They had better start working aggressively toward one soon or they won't be in leadership much longer. And again, we'll talk uh, in more detail about this failure, this latest failure uh, with uh, Ed Heiselmeyer in the five o'clock hour. Um, the latest uh, health care crashes and burns, says one headline, Senate to vote for 2015 bill. That's the one they passed over and over and over again during the Obama administration. But doesn't even look like they'll be able to do that this time around under the Trump administration. Uh, the Weekly Standard story says this. The latest version of the Senate GOP's bill to partially repeal and replace Obamacare died Tuesday, right when GOP Senator Mike Lee of Utah and Jerry Moran of Kansas announced their opposition to the legislation. The bill could lose only two GOP votes and still pass. And Lee and Moran, they brought the the grand total of GOP senators opposed to the bill to at least four. Rand Paul of Kentucky and Susan Collins of Maine uh, were uh, announced earlier, uh, earlier, immediately opposed to the bill after it was unveiled last week. And then Brett Hume says this, what principle is vindicated by voting to keep a f- a keep fully in place a law you've sworn to undo instead of voting to at least partially undo it? It's a good question. Bill Crystal on Twitter wrote, the Trumpster told me that uh, if I don't vote for Trump, we'd be stuck with Obamacare for the foreseeable future. Hmm, something to ponder. And finally, in the Washington Examiner. But then came this. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell will move towards a full repeal of Obamacare and then leave Congress two years to create a replacement. The statement late Monday came after support for a repeal and replace strategy collapsed in the Senate. Now, it's not at all clear that he's going to have an easier time of pulling that off than he did uh, failing to pull off this most uh, recent um, effort. Well, why can't Republicans get anything done? Um, Ramesh Panuru, writing for National Review, pointed out they have the power, but it hasn't yielded many accomplishments so far. The, his piece originally appeared on, uh, in the July 31st, 2017 issue of uh, National Review. An editor's note um, makes the point. Well, Republicans don't have many legislative wins to show for their control of the House, the Senate, and the White House. They have, it is true, confirmed Justice Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court. His conversation, or confirmation, rather, along with the uh, thought of how Hillary Clinton would have used executive power, uh, is enough to make a lot of conservatives happy about voting for President Trump last fall. But Republicans hope to have enacted major conservative changes in government policy by now. Congressional Republicans have complained over the years that their grassroots supporters have exaggerated expectations of what they can achieve. This time, though, the congressmen themselves have been disappointed. After the election, they too believe that Congress would quickly repeal Obamacare and then move ahead on tax reform. That didn't happen. Action on health care has been repeatedly delayed, and the current betting in Washington is that no major change to Obamacare will pass at all. Congress has barely begun to take up taxes. Legislation on infrastructure, which the president has consistently described as a priority, does not exist. 
Republicans have been productive, at least in coming up with competing explanations for their failure to change the laws. Many Republicans, especially those outside the Capitol and those who strongly support Trump, blame the congressional party. Uh, for being weak and disloyal to the president. A similar, or rather a smaller number of strong Trump supporters insist that a few um, deregulatory moves by Congress, the Gorsuch confirmation and Trump's executive actions, especially his planned withdrawal from the Paris Climate Change Accord, mean that everything is going well. That's a minority view. Often this criticism is couched as a defense of the president. If he's not signing laws, it's the fault of Congress for not sending them for his signature. Those Republicans who are more sympathetic to Speaker of the House Paul Ryan, more sympathetic to him than Trump, most Republicans in D.C., in other words, tend to blame Trump. In particular, they blame his tweets. When one of them becomes a big news story, it drowns out any other Republican message. Many Republicans in Congress complain that this White House is better at providing drama than direction. Speaker Ryan has not himself pointed a finger at Trump, not in public and not, to my knowledge, in private either. He has noted that congressional Republicans spent 10 years in opposition, first to Harry Reid and Nancy Pelosi in the last two years of the George W. Bush presidency, then to President Obama. Many members of his conference, therefore, have no experience of passing federal laws. That uh, the party stumbles, he suggests, are part of its transition to being a governing party. Seems like a fairly lame excuse, but it is an excuse. Yet Ryan's own ambitious schedule for 2017 underestimated the difficulties. Congressional Republicans aren't just out of practice at governing. They face a fundamentally new situation. From 2001 to 2007, they were very largely pursuing the agenda set by the Republican White House. The last time they were setting an agenda themselves, as they are now doing by necessity, was during the Clinton administration. They've not set an agenda that they had a responsibility to turn into law with the assistance of a Republican president since before the Great Depression. More on that in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 19 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Later this hour, we're going to talk with Austin Roos. He's the author of Fake Science. We're talking about a National Review uh, article by Ramesh Panuru uh, that... Um, focuses on the fact that Republicans can't seem to get anything done and the excuses from various quarters uh, may not be sufficient to explain what's happening and what's likely to happen moving forward. Um, I ended the last segment, and I'll quote this portion of the article again, with regard to Speaker Ryan, uh, who hasn't pointed the finger at Donald Trump, uh, not in public or in private, um, but he made the uh, the excuse, as others have, that the Republicans spent the last 10 years in opposition, first to Harry Reid, Nancy Pelosi, and the last two years of the George W. Bush presidency, then to President Obama. And many of the members in his conference have no experience in passing federal laws. Uh, the party's stumbles, he suggests, are part of its transition to being a governing party. Well, there isn't a whole lot of time, and the people's business seems to be pretty... Uh, pretty urgent. Uh, yet Ryan's own ambitious schedule for 2017, returning to the National Review column, underestimated the difficulties. Congressional Republicans aren't just out of practice at governing. They face a fundamentally new situation. From 2001 to 2007, they were very largely pursuing the agenda set by a Republican White House. The last time they were setting an agenda themselves, as they are now doing by necessity, was during the Clinton administration. They have not set an agenda that they have uh, a responsibility to turn into law with the assistance of a Republican president since before the Great Depression. 
At one tricky moment in the House's consideration of health care, Trump tweeted a few attacks on members of the House Freedom Caucus. The controversy that ensued might obscure the fact that he has generally taken a very hands-off approach to the Congress. He has said that congressional Republicans, not he, decided to tackle health care first. Ryan has pushed for tax reform to include a broader adjusted, adjusted tax to offset some of the revenue losses other portions of the reform will cause. Trump's aides have not taken a unified line on the matter, pro or con. Trump's management style, unusual in a president, does not require public unity from his subordinates. Budget Director Mick Mulvaney and Treasury Secretary Steve Munchen have taken uh, opposing views in interviews about how much revenue a reformed tax code should raise. Mulvaney has also said that the administration's budget does not reflect its policy proposals, which left some observers a bit flummoxed, since putting its proposals into budgetary form has has historically, maybe hysterically is the right word today, been considered the point of the document. I mean, why else have one? Well, the president does not engage or seem familiar with the details of policy either. Many jobs in his administration remain remain unfilled, many cases with uh, no nominees yet submitted. For these and other reasons, his administration has provided his congressional allies with much less guidance than is typical. Usually a president, uh, a presidential candidate runs on a fairly detailed list of proposals and communications to his uh, communicates rather to his party, the public and relevant interest groups that he intends to achieve something close to his, uh, its top items. That list reflects, adjusts, and solidifies the party's existing consensus. When the candidate comes from the party that controls Congress but not the White House, the list includes many of the priorities that the incumbent president um, beat back. If the candidate wins, his party defers to his list. In the run-up to 2016, congressional Republicans decided to rely even more than before on their presidential nominee's policy preferences. Senate Republicans made a conscious decision not to put forward a comprehensive agenda so as to leave the nominee free to develop his own plans. Ryan tried to supply some content, devising a list of policies that he called a better way. But the lack of Senate buy-in and the expectation that the presidential nominee would have a more authoritative platform limited the seriousness with which House Republicans took it. When Trump won, though, congressional Republicans couldn't defer to his proposals, even if they had been inclined to do so for a man uh, many of them regarded as an interloper because his campaign was so light on policy. His health plan consisted of a few pages of um, boilerplate, uh, much of it dated. Uh, The plan endorsed health savings accounts, for example, without taking any notice of the fact that President Bush had already gotten them enacted. His own administration had not drawn on these pages. He ran on one tax plan during the primaries, another during the general election, reportedly instructed his White House staff to come up with a new plan that mimicked a New York Times op-ed he had read and then oversaw the release of a plan that could fit On a three by five card. Well, during the last few decades, our political system has come to rely ever more heavily on strong presidential leadership and a shift away from this model of an overbearing executive may be um, uh, salutary. Uh, It has, however, also been abrupt. Congressional Republicans have been left scrambling to figure out their own role. Now, this is particularly interesting in light of the previous administration that was very heavily Uh, led by an executive. Now, perhaps they're blaming their tweets uh, for their travails, blaming his tweets, uh, tweet rather, for their travails as a form of displaced anger over their new obligations. The proposition that the tweets are undermining congressional work does not really hold up. Nobody in Congress is going to vote against a tax bill because of something Trump tweeted about 
uh, well, Brzezinski. And it's not as though the president would make a compelling case for Republican health care legislation, whether to the public or to hold out senators, if only he could keep himself from using a social media account to boost and settle scores. Whether anyone could make a compelling case for that legislation is a contested question. The health care bill is hated by many and loved by almost no one, in part because it does not reflect any coherent understanding of what our health policy should be. That may be the kind of legislation one should expect with neither the Congress nor the president as though um, has thought through a policy agenda. The health debate has shown that moderate Republicans especially never worked out the implications of the party's loud opposition to Obamacare, which they joined with gusto. If they had, they might have realized that it was impossible to repeal Obamacare while also refusing to modify in any way its protections for people with pre-existing conditions. The same lack of forethought is already undermining tax reform. Republicans think they have a clear idea of tax reform because they share certain goals, such as lower tax rates and better treatment of investment. But those goals can be pursued in many different ways. How large should the tax cuts be? Is it more important to cut corporate or individual tax rates? Or would the economy be better served by changing the definition of the corporate tax base? Should concerns about the trade deficit affect our tax policy? And how should Trump's promises about child care be uh, integrated with tax reform? if they should be at all. Well, passing tax legislation will not require starting out with a consensus on all these questions, let alone on the more detailed ones that have, a, have to be answered after them. But Republican lawmakers are quite far away from a consensus on them, and the vast majority of individual congressmen and women do not yet have a strong sense of their own answers. It is a mistake, then, to ask why Trump, Ryan, and the rest are not making uh, more rapid progress on the Republican agenda. That question assumes that Republicans have a clear sense of what they want and are confronting an obstacle to the realization of their desires, that they're not getting their way because, well, blank, which could uh, be filled with Trump is being a maniac on Twitter or Ryan is a weakling. But the problem is more basic. The main reason they're not doing much is that they haven't figured out what they want to do. Now, Ramesh Panuru is a senior editor of National Review, and I think he hits the nail on the head as to why the Republicans uh, have failed to move forward on what has been a a major priority, at least rhetorical priority, for um, nearly seven years. And now that they have uh, complete control, uh, why so little progress has yet been made. And it's disheartening to consider that he may also be accurate when it comes to the economy and tax reform, that there's so little clarity as to what the, uh, the not just the plan is, but what the goal ultimately is. So little leadership from the White House uh, in terms of uh, outlining an agenda that that people can either buy into or oppose, uh, that it it's uh, less and less likely that the constructive Um, move to the right that many expected, had anticipated, and with good reason, at least numerically, uh, may not be realized in this first um, uh, first term, and certainly not before the midterm elections, which could, of course, change everything. All right, coming up, we're going to talk with author Austin Roos. The book is titled Fake Science, Exposing the Left's Skewed Statistics, Fuzzy Facts, and Dodgy Data. And then in the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to talk about the uh, Senate health care bill in greater detail. Ed Heiselmeyer will join us to uh, look at what happened, how we got to this point, and what's likely to happen next, if anything, 
uh, to repeal and place Ob- uh, replace Obamacare. And if that's likely to happen anytime soon, we're also going to talk with Brian Riley. He points out that uh, over the next, what, 29 days, the renegotiation of NAFTA will begin. And the administration has released a blueprint for renegotiating uh, NAFTA. And uh, he and others have made some recommendations as to what needs to happen in order for this to be a uh, meaningful uh, effort uh, in order to um, retain the elements of NAFTA that are useful and and good, uh, to renegotiate elements and uh, jettison ed- elements that are no longer useful, and to update it in terms of new technologies that just simply were not in place uh, when it was established originally. So we'll talk with him uh, about that. Also, we'll give you an update on the status of Charlie Gard. As you know, a U.S. surgeon went to the U.K., uh, met with uh, physicians there, and for the first time had the opportunity to actually examine uh, the little 11-month-old himself, and a recommendation is expected uh, sooner rather than later. A judge will then determine whether or not Charlie Gard is eligible to be released for experimental uh, treatment that has worked on others with a situation similar, but uh, in some cases not quite as serious. So we'll uh, share you the latest on that as well. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 35 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Now consider this. We should all be able to rely on the unbiased facts of science for some of the biggest decisions of our lives, our health, education, the well-being of our families, right? However, my next guest argues that the left has blatantly manipulated so many of these facts to advance their agenda and repress all data or all debate that we're living in a world of fake science. In his explosive new book by the same name, Fake Science, exposing the left's skewed statistics, fuzzy facts and dodgy data published by Regnery, uh, CFAM president and author Austin Ruse punctures the so-called facts used to re- and reveals how poorly their version of data measures up to actual science. Well, he joins us today to talk about this uh, this fascinating new book. As I mentioned, Austin Roos is president of the Center for Family and Human Rights, or CFAM, a New York and Washington, D.C.-based research institute in special constructive status with the U.N. Economic and Social Council. He was a longtime contributor to Breitbart and writes a biweekly column for Crisis Magazine. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, delighted to be with you. Thanks for having me. Well, fake science, we're so used to the phrase fake news and uh, really reconsidering whether or not what we see, hear, and read is accurate. Um, Fake science, uh, I I suppose, just had to be the next thing for us to consider because there are so many things that are being uh, elevated as uh, reliable because it's based on science. Talk a little bit about where we stand today in this brave new world in terms of science that isn't as reliable as we were led in elementary and high school to believe it was. Well, you know, the funny thing is, is that fake science is actually older than fake news. It's just that we've come to recognize it uh, a little bit more these days. Uh, it's, it's, it, the understanding of it has been heightened in, the, for instance, the global warming debate, but in many others as well. Uh, you know, the, the, the debate about uh, transgenderism, for instance, uh, heightens. A lot of that is based on, quote-unquote, science, which turns out to be fake science. But also in, in questions like fracking and, and uh, even hunger and poverty. Uh, a lot of the public policy questions of our day are dealt with on, in scientific terms, because we live in a scientific age, science is a lingua franca of our time, and in order to advance a left-wing agenda, the left has suborned uh, scientists to, to, to make their case. And so we live 
sadly, in an age of fake science. Well, we're often being um, told that, that certain things, that it's based on settled science. Describe what that means and what it doesn't mean, because dissenters are often uh, prevented from being heard or c- certainly from being taken seriously. Well, yes, precisely. I mean, uh, settled science is 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 a is kind of, it's a code word for shut up and sit down uh you know that that you, you you can't talk about this anymore um you know supposedly catas- catastrophic global warming is is settled science i mean uh global warming is real and and as i say in the book it's a good thing um you know the the earth has warmed about a, a 1.5 degrees fahrenheit since the end of the little ice age in 1870 um but the cataclysmic uh, global warming that we hear so much about is is simply refuted over and over and over again. You know, we were, we're supposed to be out of polar bears by now, but in fact, there are more polar bears today than there were 20 years ago. So, so all of the claims, the scientific claims centered around settled science, uh, show are shown over and over again uh, to be false. What about the notion of consensus? Uh, again, I hear from from many who suggest that consensus is another way of suggesting that certain elements of the scientific community are simply invited to sit down and shut up, as you've described. Well, yeah, you know, that, that consensus is, is perhaps a, a little more polite way uh, than to say something is settled. But it, yes, it's all of a piece, and, and, and that is that you cannot question this. Uh, you know, uh, on the global warming debate, we're told that 97% of uh, climate scientists agree that, that cataclysmic global warming is true. And even that is, is, is uh, fake science. <laughs> There's no such thing as 97% of, of climate scientists who have agreed to that. I mean, it's generally understood, like I said, that the globe has warmed. There's agreement on that. But, but what that means, there's widespread disagreement on that. Okay, let's talk about some of the inconvenient facts that uh, you write in your book, Fake Science, um, uh, that we are not intended to, to question or to fully understand. One you've already made reference to, uh, fact number one, that fake science about hunger is making people rich. The presumption is that everybody wants to see the world's hungry fed and that we're willing to go to great lengths to, to see to it uh, that that's possible. Well, you know, um, we, we are told repeatedly on public billboards that one in four children will go to bed hungry tonight. Um, the federal government changed its understanding of hunger and its definition of hunger many years ago um, to food security. Low food security is as bad as it gets. Low food security means that at the end of the month, somebody may worry that they don't have enough money for lunch and dinner the next day. Um, so it, it, it's, it's really a measurement of worry rather than actual hunger. Um, so it, it, even that, and, 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 and that is promulgated by an enormous industry, the, you know, the poverty industry. One of the largest NGOs in the country is this group called Feeding America. The CEO makes $600,000 a year. They've got, I, I think, $100 million in the bank. Um, you know, the poverty, the poverty industry is quite good for some people. Uh, but as a matter of fact, the, the, the American poor are better off than most people understand. Um, the typical uh, person below the poverty line owns their own home, owns one or two cars, uh, has more living space than the typical middle-class person in Europe. Uh, so there's a, there's a widespread misunderstanding about what poverty and hunger mean in America today. So is this a matter of science or is this just a matter of, of definition? 
Well, you know, that is a very good question. You know, in 1967, the year that the, the war on poverty began, uh, there was one definition of poor. And 14% of Americans fit into the definition of poor. The definition has now changed. And today, do you know what the percentage of people living under the poverty line are? No. 14%. So even by their own calculation, uh, there has been no change in the poverty rate since 1967, even though we have spent, get this, $22 trillion since 1967 to alleviate poverty. But as a matter of fact, the poverty definition has changed. Uh, the t- typical poor person in 1967, I think, would have been thrilled to own their own home, to have one or two cars. Um, so, that, yeah, the, def- the definitions are very important in these types of debates. Another of the, uh, the fake science stories that you highlight in the book is that global warming um, is catastrophic and man-made. You make the point that global warming is real. Let's first talk about the science about the warming of the planet, or now climate change as it's been uh, referred to. What does science actually say, and what are we to make of what science tells us? Well, I mean, th- there is general understanding and agreement across the spectrum that the Earth has warmed uh, since the end of the Little Ice Age in 1870, and, and that makes perfect sense. It was the Little Ice Age. Um, where there is widespread disagreement is, is precisely what that means. And some on the ideological left claim that, you know, the seas will rise dramatically and Europe will be underwater, that Miami will be underwater, uh, that the ice caps are melting. Um, you know, they regularly send, you know, ships up into the North Pole to measure the decline of the, the polar ice cap. And I write about two ships that they sent for that purpose that got stuck in the ice and had to be rescued. Um, so one of the problems with all of these claims is that something that we dearly need, and that is honest science, is losing credibility over these ideological claims. Uh, one of the most important chapters in the book is, is, is called Back Off Man, I'm a Scientist, which is a line from a Bill Murray movie, uh, because there are very serious problems in peer review, for instance, and the replication of major studies. There is something very wrong in science right now. Part of it is ideological. Another part, in some cases, is fraud. Yeah, and science isn't supposed to be ideological, uh, is it? You make the point that peer review is a scam. Cheating authors review their own studies, and research that challenges the artificial consensus is is blackballed. Uh, So there are real questions about how science is interpreted, whether or not uh, these peer reviews are reliable. Uh, and, and I suppose that that presents a very frustrating uh, set of uh, notions for those who are trying to just arrive at truth and understand uh, how to respond to what we what science does actually tell us. You know, I, one thing I, I want to underscore is that in the scientific professions, there are thousands and thousands of honest, hardworking scientists doing very important work. Um, however, and, and these men and women have begun to police their own frontiers. Um, there is a website now run by scientists called Retraction Watch, which, which tracks uh, peer-reviewed studies that have been withdrawn because of reasons of fraud. The uh, Springer Publishing Company, which is one of the largest publishers of scientific journals, uh, withdrew 100 studies a couple of years ago because they uh, realized 
realized that they were based on false peer review. Uh, the Amgen uh, people in California uh, went and tried to replicate 57 landmark studies in biomedical research and were unable to do so. So good, honest scientists have begun to police their own frontiers, which is very important for the rest of us because we need honest science and we need honest medicine. And, and, and so I, I just want to underscore there's lots of good mm-hmm. people in science. Make no mistake about that. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking with Austin Roos. His book is titled Fake Science. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 51 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Austin Roos. He's the author of Fake Science, Exposing the Left's Skewed Statistics, Fuzzy Facts, and Dodgy Data. What role does the media play in misinterpreting the findings of legitimate science uh, that might be useful but is often uh, misreported? Well, I just, just think back not too many years to the uh, great uh, national debate over embryonic stem cell research, what, what we would call embryo-destructive research. I mean, uh, those who spoke uh, against embryo-destructive research made many claims that it would not turn out, that there would be no treatments and cures, and that it was unethical because it, 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 it kills a, a, a human uh, being. Um, and we were told by scientists who then repeated it in the mainstream media endlessly that we were anti-science. And that's the charge that's made against us all the time, that you're anti-science. Uh, if you don't believe in, in this particular theory or that particular left-wing theory, you're anti-science. And, and, and so there is a very unhealthy relationship between fake science and, and fake news and, and the mainstream media. I would argue, however, that fake science is far more dangerous than fake news because fake news is ephemeral. It can be here today, gone tomorrow. It can be knocked down by a new narrative. But fake science has a tendency to lodge in people's minds um, and not leave. Consider, you know, all of those families who do not get their children inoculated uh, because of the, the, the fear of autism. Um, getting that out is is probably never going to happen with many people. The notion that 10% of the population is, is gay um, is utterly phony. Um, it was created by a gay activist who was going to meet uh, Jimmy Carter uh, in, in the White House many, many years ago based on a flawed study by, uh, by uh, Alfred Kinsey, who never made the claim of 10%. So, so these ideas lodge in people's minds, and it's almost impossible to get them out. And, and so the, the, the coalition of fake science and fake news in the news media is very potent. In the area of sex and gender, we are uh, we are encouraged to simply disregard um, biology and physiology altogether. In other words, science is is not relevant. What about cases like that where uh, we're told that that science is meaningless or the the, the tangible things that we know and understand uh, are not relevant? Well, you know, um, the the very notion of gender identity is one of the most monstrous lies that we've ever been asked to believe. The the notion of gender identity was actually created by um, a monster by the name of John Money, who was a noted psychiatrist at Johns Hopkins University. Um, There was a little boy brought to him whose penis had been burned off in a routine circumcision, and his theory was that 
that sex and gender are a social construct and the little boy could be raised as a little girl. And he proceeded to help the parents do this until the boy in his early teen years. But the boy consistently rejected a female identity consistently yet money lied in his research to say that the that that the experiment was a rousing success and based on that they founded the first sex change clinic in america johns hopkins university that is a monstrous lie that many people to this day believe and it was begun by a moral monster named john money another one of the facts that you um address is the is the idea of fracking um, we have waited for a long time for the State Department to uh, to comment on the, its impact on the environment. The EPA has weighed in. Um, you write that the EPA found 9.4 million people living within a mile of a fracking well and 6,800 sources of drinking water uh, located within one mile of a well. Um, uh, if the drinking water contamination was a problem, you'd think there would be uh, plenty of it. Uh, to issue this kind of a thunderous warning. What what does science tell us, and what does the EPA, for example, tell us about fracking? Well, you know, one of the, you know, the EPA is not a conservative uh, branch of the federal government. It's quite liberal. Uh, but even the EPA has given a green light to fracking. Um, their, um, their years-long research into all of um, the, 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 those uh, sites of fracking and, 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 the, and the drinking water aquifer and so on and so forth, and, and, and they have, have given uh, fracking uh, uh, a green light. I'll say a cautious green light, but a green light nonetheless. I mean, <clears throat> fracking is a modern-day miracle. The United States sits on an ocean of natural gas, and they have discovered a way to, to get at it. Uh, I will note that uh, fracking occurs 1,500 feet below Earth's surface, and the aquifer that people are worried about is a few hundred feet below Earth's surface. So the two are quite separate. Um, and, and nonetheless, um, left-wing agitators like this guy Josh Fox, who created a, a documentary called Gasland, go out there and say that fracking causes cancer, fracking causes earthquakes, uh, fracking is an environmental disaster. And right down the line, this has been proven false fake science. Um, so yeah, even the EPA has said that fracking is fine. Well, uh, that raises the question for the average Joe who is reading the newspaper, listening to the news. You hear a study cited what science has found, and people are are really confused about what to believe and what not to believe. We know that um, oftentimes uh, science, in quotes, is used for ideological purposes. Certain things are emphasized. Others are de-emphasized or omitted altogether, or it's misrepresented on its face. What should our response be and how should we respond to the notion that fake science really is having a great influence on public policy and in other areas? Well, you know, the, the, the everyday person is in a real quandary um, because, I mean, let, let's, let's make it very personal. You know, uh, sitting down at the dinner table and uh, your son or daughter are coming home from college for the first time um, and they're coming back with all of these, you know, theories and studies and things like that. I and mean, what is a person to do? Uh, that is the reason that I wrote the book, is to equip the everyday person with the real science across 11 issue areas, including marriage and family. I mean, one of the great lies of, of the 20th century, now the 21st century, is that, is that 
children will do just fine, you know, with without their mom and dad or with separate households. That is to say, uh, divorce uh, is a, is a happy occasion uh, when, in fact, the social science shows that it's a disaster. So, so almost all the claims of the left uh, on a, a major number of, uh, of public policy issues are simply false. So the book will show what the left says about science in a particular area and then what the science really shows. And it will equip, you know, mom and dad to talk to their son when he comes home from college. It'll help you if you're at the Kiwanis Club, you know, having a beer with your friends and debating the issues. That's why I wrote the book, to equip the everyday person with real answers about what science says. Well, and I think it also encourages us to be uh, critical thinkers in terms of what we uh, read and hear uh, how to think perhaps more deeply and look more deeply behind uh, some of the headlines that influence, again, public policy and public opinion. Hey, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate it. It was a treat. Thank you so much. Again, the book is titled Fake Science. Austin Roos is the author. It's published by Regnery and is available uh, where books are sold. Uh, coming up in the next hour of the program, we're going to deal with a few issues. We'll deal with the uh, Senate health care bill that has uh, gone down in flames again. We're going to talk about the renegotiation of NAFTA, which begins in about 29 days, and uh, the status of Charlie Gard, the 11-month-old whose life hangs in the balance. There's a U.S. surgeon who is in the U.K. now examining the boy and offering uh, his assessment of the possibility that alternative treatment might help his condition. News and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Clark Hilton, by the way, is engineering. Well, I wanted to take a, a segment and just focus on some of the some of the things that are going on in the world around us that uh, you might be interested in that have an impact on the nature of the culture we find ourselves uh, in. As ambassadors of Christ, these are some of the challenges we face. Um, in view of my conversation with Austin Ruse in the previous segment, who's the author of Fake Science, you might want to check that interview out on our podcast. I noted a Washington Post article. The headline read, Why These Professors Are Warning Against Promoting the Work of Straight White Men. Uh, in other words, the, per- the people who did the research is now more important than the findings and whether or not they themselves are reliable. Uh, Kristen Phillips, writing for the Washington Post, points out that academics and scholars must be mindful about using research done by only straight white men, according to two scientists who argued that it's, it oppresses diverse voices and bolsters the status of already privileged and established white male scholars. Um, geographers Carrie Mott and Daniel Cockane uh, argued in a recent paper that doing so also perpetuates what they call white heteromasculinism, which they defined as a system of oppression that benefits only those who are white, male, able-bodied, economically privileged, heterosexual, and cisgendered. By the way, cisgendered, if you have trouble keeping up, describes people whose gender identity matches their birth sex. So if you are biologically male and you identify as male, then you are apparently cisgender. I thought you were just a boy, but apparently you're more than that. Well, Mott, a professor at Rutgers University in New Jersey, and Cockaine, who uh, teaches at the University of Waterloo in Ontario, argued that scholars or researchers disproportionately cited their work, uh, the work rather, of white men, thereby unfairly adding credence to the body of knowledge they offer while ignoring the voices of other groups. Now, it seems to me they're talking about two different things. 
for example, if you want to, um, uh, to understand E equals MC squared, you reject that because it was a white heterosexual male that came up with the theory? Or do you uh, accept the, seri- the theory if it's true and then listen to other voices? It seems to me they're talking about two different things. Uh, but they go on to say that you uh, you are uh, ignoring the voices of other groups like women and black male academics. And although citation seems like a mundane practice, the feminist professors argue that citing someone's work has implications on his or her ability to be hired, get promoted and obtain tenured status, among others. Now, this important research has drawn direct attention to the continued underrepresentation and marginalization of women, people of color and uh, and so on. Uh, so uh, apparently... It matters who you are. If you discover something and you happen to be a heterosexual white male, it really is not relevant. Uh, Whether or not your theory is true, we're being told by these professors ought to be disregarded. But if you happen to be um, um, bisexual and African-American and your theory may or may not be true, then you ought to be cited because to do otherwise would somehow be uh, discriminatory. And then there's this Harvard's uh, proposed policy that would punish students for having normal social lives. This is for the second time uh, in less than two years. Harvard College Dean Rakish Karana is expanding paternalistic restrictions and sanctions on the student body based on whom they choose to be friends with and associate with. You know, we have the freedom of association in this country, but not at Harvard. In an email to the student body in on the 12th of July, the dean reported uh, that the USGSO committee. You can figure that out on your own, which handles policy on unrecognized single gender social organizations and which is uh, which the dean co-chairs released preliminary recommendations to be reviewed by the faculty and then approved by Harvard University's president, Drew Faust. In other words, they're overseeing the organizations that are single sex or single gender. Uh, for example, if you have an all-girls club or an all-male club. Well, these recommendations outline a new policy that exceeds the bounds of a prior, already overreaching policy that would remain in place unless Faust approves the new policy. So they already have restrictions on and penalties associated with associating with people of your same sex, unless, of course, you are same-sex attracted, and that, of course, is different. Well, the first policy began in 2016. It targeted all male and all female organizations, including fraternities, sororities, and final clubs, uh, all of which are off-campus, self-funded, and unrecognized by the university. So the university reaching out beyond its own territory to reach these um, these organizations. It stated that starting with the class of 2021, that's this fall's freshmen, members of those organizations will be barred from receiving prestigious scholarships like the Rhodes Scholarship, athletic team captaincies, and leadership positions in recognized student organizations. So if you are a part of a sorority and the sorority is all women, uh, you're not eligible to become a Rhodes Scholar. It doesn't matter how well you perform academically because you are in an all-girl group you're no longer eligible. In response, some clubs like the traditionally all-male Spee Club and the traditionally all-female Seneca decided to transition into being co-ed. The new policy goes even further, claiming that its initial goal of ending gender segregation and discrimination was too narrow. The committee's new policy extends its sanctions to any private exclusionary social organizations that are exclusively or predominantly made up of Harvard students, whether they have any local or national affiliation. 
single gender or otherwise, so that the clubs that attempted to adhere to the first policy cannot escape sanction. In other words, they're making sure everybody uh, falls under this uh, this new rule. Uh, or you're not eligible for certain honors that you would earn as a student at Harvard. Well, perhaps even more distressingly, uh, it recommends that students who choose to join these clubs will face suspension and expulsion from the college. Now, the faculty committee is seeking to model this policy on those adopted by Williams College and Bodoin uh, College, including a policy that requires students to pledge that they will aid, or rather abide by the school's social code, a code that prohibits joining pledging, rushing, or even attending events sponsored by the prohibited groups. Now, Faust, uh, who will be stepping down at the end of this academic year, seemingly has nothing to lose. He's not going to be around to uh, to live with the fallout if he uh, approves this whole thing. Well, the groupthink mentality of the importance of diversity and inclusion is apparent throughout the committee's report, as it continually emphasizes the importance of making all Harvard students feel included. It then asserts in bold letters, it is important to note that no one has suggested doing nothing. This is simply untrue. Numerous students have suggested allowing students to retain their rights to freedom of association. And professors like Harry Lewis have publicly condemned the administration's intervention in students' private lives. In addition, a student referendum on the policy referenced in the committee's report show that nearly double as many students voted to repeal the sanctions as voted in support. Not really relevant and worthy of attention, apparently, by this committee. Further, the definition it gives for the outside groups affected by this policy is far too broad. And while it lists several clubs that the policy is intended to apply to today, it also applies the policy broadly to any similar organizations that are made up primarily of Harvard students and which are private exclusionary and social in nature. So you can be a part of an organization that has no connection whatsoever to Harvard University, but if it is single gender and you happen to be a student at Harvard, then this policy applies to you. Could a group of friends at Harvard fall subject to this policy if they exclude others from a private party they host? What about a private game night? Does this group of friends need a formal name in order to be subject? These are questions uh, that are uh, yet to be answered in this brave new world we find ourselves in. And then there's this. The U.S. Army is telling women soldiers that they need to accept gender-confused biological men in their showers, bathrooms, barracks, as part of a controversial policy to build dignity and respect, in quotes, for transgender soldiers. Now, nothing said about the dignity and respect of women uh, who would like to retain a modicum of privacy and modesty. The guidance is part of the Pentagon's new transgender inclusion agenda launched by Obama and gaining ground in the armed services. Social conservatives are mounting a counteroffensive to ditch the trans program altogether, which the House failed to do earlier this week. President Trump and the Pentagon have uh, sent mixed signals on LGBTQ issues and the Department of Defense honoring gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender Pride Month in June, even as Trump himself broke with Obama by not issuing a homosexual pride proclamation. Well, there are a number of vignettes, and I don't have time to go into all of it, but uh, I'll revisit this at some point in the future. But in order to make a few comfortable, they're making a whole lot of others um, 
Well, uncomfortable is an understatement, but uh, we'll we will revisit the subject at uh, some future point. Uh, Coming up, we're going to talk with Ed Heiselmeyer. He's uh, going to talk with us about the Senate health care bill, what happened and what's likely to happen next. And we'll talk with Brian Riley uh, about NAFTA. The White House is uh, has released a blueprint for renegotiating NAFTA. Uh, We got about 30 days uh, before that process begins. And we'll talk a bit about that with Brian Riley. You're listening to The Georgine Rice show you're listening to the georgine rice show podcast is aired on 93.9 kpdq we're back you're listening to the georgine rice show well the senate health care bill well it's apparently going nowhere these efforts uh, took another turn in the senate last night after two more gop senators said that they could not support the current version of the gop health care legislation uh, here to talk with us about that is Ed Heiselmeyer to discuss the evolution of the Obamacare repeal efforts and why Congress won't be done, whether they pass the 2015 reconciliation bill or the House or Senate version of the current reconciliation uh, effort. Uh, by the way, Ed Heiselmeyer is the Preston A. Wells Junior Senior Research Fellow uh, at the Heritage Foundation. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I think a lot of people are scratching their heads because... We thought that, you know, by now, given the seven-year run-up to this moment, uh, there would have been at least some broad general agreement about how to repeal and replace Obamacare, but uh, yet another disappointment last night. First of all, tell us what happened. Well, uh, what happened is there are several senators who said that they wouldn't go ahead with the motion to to start the process uh, because they have problems with the current version of the bill as it is. So... Um, that means that uh, they don't have the votes to move forward yet. Uh, this is a very fluid situation. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, especially when you have, uh, when everyone knows that there's a narrow margin, that means that each senator has undue leverage to extract concessions from the others. But, of course, when everybody plays that game against everybody else, it can get pretty messy pretty quick. Yeah. Now, what role... And, oh, go, please go ahead. No, I'm just saying some of, some of it's philosophical and some of it's purely, uh, you know, related to home state issues and things mm-hmm. like that. So it, it depends. Now, has the president used the bully pulpit? He made an announcement just a, a short while ago saying that he was confident that the Senate would, in fact, pass this legislation. Now he's saying, well, let's just repeal the whole thing and, and start over. What role, if any, is the president playing in helping to uh, build support for the legislation, aside from making announcements that uh, he's confident of what's going to happen? Yeah, I don't know. And, and, and this is where, with President Trump being a non-politician uh, as a, in, in that role, um, you have a very different uh, set of circumstances than you do uh, than what you would expect uh, from from somebody who's a traditional politician. So you're never quite sure how he's going to uh, respond or lead on these on these issues. But but really, I mean, it's less about the the process. I mean, the, the process is always going to be messy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the the top line really is that you've got a a law that is creating serious problems for. Uh, a significant number of people. I mean, basically, it's true that there are some people who have gained coverage with subsidies, but there are a lot of people, and these are the people who were buying coverage in the individual insurance market before uh, the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare came along, uh, and they tend to be self-employed, middle-class, uh, you know, people. Plus, you have small businesses 
uh, who have also been affected because a lot of the regulations are applied to the small business insurance market as well as the individual market. So you're looking at tens of millions of people there, probably upwards of 30 million people, who, when this law came along, it has disrupted their coverage, driven up the cost, uh, fewer insurers, higher deductibles, and they're not seeing any benefit. And so those are the people who are most disadvantaged, and those are the people who have been most supportive of repealing and replacing uh, the ACA or Obamacare, and those are the people who are uh, who. who basically put Republicans in office, and uh, it'll be interesting to see what they do if they don't get uh, what they were promised. Yeah, two words, Nancy Pelosi. Let, let, me, <laughs> <laughs> let me ask well, you. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, you know, actually, uh, the two words I would I would think of would be primary challenge. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, I mean, if you think about it, if, if you're somebody in that situation, I have personal friends like this. I mean, I have, you know, longstanding personal friends who are small town, you know, lawyers. I mean, they're just sort of, they're not, you know, fancy lawyers. They're bread and butter, you know, with Bills, estates, trust, bankruptcies, you know, divorces, DUI, I mean, that kind of stuff in a small town. And they're self-employed, and they've seen their insurance go through the roof. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you could go on and on. Business owners, you know, same thing. They're upset. And with good cause. rightly so. (laughs) Well, let me ask you about the 2015 reconciliation bill. Now there's talk about passing what they passed many times under the previous administration. Now, one would assume, although it's not the exact same makeup in the Senate, uh, one would assume they could at least pass that. But it doesn't seem that that's likely to happen either. I I think that was the plan back uh, when the new Congress and president took office in January. I, I don't see that happening, but you know who knows at this point. Uh, I mean, if you look at it, we just published today an analysis. The fact of the matter is that both what the House passed as a version and what the Senate has been considering are actually improvements over what that 2015 bill did. And by that, I, I would focus particularly on the fact that the 2015 bill was addressing the taxes and spending. What it did not do, and what the House bill and the Senate bill have attempted to do, is to address the things that are really driving up the costs for people, and those are the regulations. Uh, Again, I mentioned folks who are self-employed or in small business. What's driving up the cost of their health care is the regulations in the legislation, not so much the taxes and spending. I mean, the taxes do play a role, but, but the regulations are the big culprit. So to the extent that these current versions are addressing those regulations or attempting to, um, they are improvements, not only over Obamacare, but over the 2015 bill that shied away from doing that because they didn't want to risk some of that being ruled out of order. Now that they control Congress, they're willing to go forward. So I, I'm, you know, I, I think that would sort of in some ways be a step back. Um, and it wouldn't be addressing the, the big issue that, uh, again, affects their constituents, which is the regulations. Now, some people are saying, well, you know, you don't go far enough. Well, fair enough, but it's further than what has been done in the past in both 2015 uh, legislation. So is this a case for um, a series of uh, decisions being made through legislation rather than one large piece of legislation that attempts to cover everything? 
I mean, one of the criticisms of the Affordable Care Act was that it's this huge piece of legislation that nobody read or, or fully understood uh, trying to deal with a fifth of the U.S. economy. Is it is it a better approach to deal with a few things at a time and this uh, being a process rather than a single event? Um, ideally, yes. I mean, the problem that they've got is that they don't have anybody on the other side of the table to work with on this. Mm-hmm. In other words, uh, the Democrats enacted this when they had a large majority. Uh, they had 60 votes in the Senate. The Republicans only have 52 right now. Um, and the, the, this has been basically a job killer for congressional Repo- Democrats. So uh, you kind of wonder at what point do the Democrats cut their losses and throw in the towel and say, yeah, we're willing to work with you to, 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 to get out of this. Well, we haven't reached that point yet. So the Republicans look at that and say, all right, if we're going to fix it, we're going to have to do it on our own. Now, at that point, then, it becomes very difficult if you don't have a vehicle where you can do it with 50 votes. So that's why they shove everything into one bill and try to get it through. It's not the way it should be done ideally, but uh, what's happened is that this has just become an incredibly uh, partisan issue, and there really is uh, very, really no sign that you're going to have any kind of uh, cooperation in sitting down and, and reworking this. Now, the president most recently said, OK, let's just let this thing implode on its own. Let's repeal it and then take some time to work on the details. Is that likely to be the, the, the next step? Are, they, uh, are there numbers to repeal the thing? The the the, the problem the problem with that view is that it does well. There's two problems with it. One is it doesn't fully implode. Uh, what and and the second problem because you know there's some this is subsidizing some people to buy coverage and if you don't repeal it the subsidies just keep flowing and and there will be somebody to offer the coverage in a lot of places, uh, not everywhere. Um, and two, if they let it go as is, the people who get hurt most by that strategy are the people who voted for the president and the Republicans, uh, because they're the ones who are not getting the subsidies. Well, I, I would uh, sum it up by saying this is a bit of a mess, and I'm hoping they can yeah. <laughs> sort through it sooner rather than later. Yeah, I, I think they just have to take another run at it. Yeah, uh, you yeah. know, and 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 but you know that's the that's the legislative process. I mean, you know, it's 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 uh, it's often messy, and and there's often brinkmanship, and then you might wake up one day and suddenly bang! Oh, wait a minute! Last night they agreed it and passed yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's hope that will be the let's case. Hope. Ed Heiselmeyer, thank you so much for talking with us. Thanks. Appreciate it very much. Again, uh, he is the Preston A. Wells Junior, let's see, Junior Senior Research Fellow uh, on, uh, on uh, health care. Quick break. We'll be back. Uh, when we return, we'll talk with Brian Riley. Uh, we're going to talk about renegotiating NAFTA. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, yesterday, which is about 30 days before the North American Free Trade Agreement, renegotiations are set to begin or resume. U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer released the administration's negotiation objectives for NAFTA. Well, heritage trade expert Brian Riley says the U.S. Trade Representative is committed to an America First trade policy and is aimed at encouraging companies to stay in the 
U.S., to create jobs here, to pay taxes in the U.S., and it can be advanced by keeping the parts of NAFTA that work, modernizing the parts that uh, uh, that don't, uh, take advantage of new technologies, expanding uh, NAFTA to encompass sectors that were excluded from the original agreement. Well, he joins us now to talk about uh, what's likely to happen in 30 days and what the administration is proposing. Uh, my guest is uh, by, uh, Brian Riley. He's the Jay Van Andel uh, Senior Policy Analyst in Trade Policy at the Center for Free Markets and Regulatory Reform at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me this afternoon. It's, uh, it's an interesting time. I remember working on NAFTA in, in the 1990s and had no idea that uh, here decades later, we'd still be talking about it. <laughs> yes. Well, we know that the president has um, modified his position on a number of issues, and it seems that that also applies to NAFTA. First of all, let me ask you if what um, is being presented by the U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer is consistent with what uh, we understood the president's position to be on NAFTA. Well, yes, I think it is consistent. Uh, the negotiating objectives that were released yesterday by the U.S. Trade Representative's Office, they're broad enough that they, they give a whole lot of leeway uh, for negotiators to, to uh, achieve their goals and, and be able to potentially claim victory uh, if the negotiations wind up uh, with an improvement or change change to NAFTA. Um, it's really interesting to me that, uh, that during the campaign, uh, then candidate Trump, had a lot of criticism of the North American Free Trade Agreement, and even more criticism of something called the Trans-Pacific Partnership, another trade mm-hmm. deal that, that uh, President Obama had wrapped up. Uh, but some of the, the talking points that have been included for NAFTA negotiations, which I think by and large are good, uh, are, are actually taken from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or TPP. For example, really trying to update NAFTA, which was... It took effect in 1994, so we didn't have cell phones. We weren't Googling things. We weren't selling things back and forth over eBay. So trying to account for those kinds of issues um, is really the direction that, that a, lot of, a lot of us hope the negotiations will go in. Now, in the absence of the Trump administration challenging NAFTA as it currently stands, were we likely to see these kinds of innovations suggested for NAFTA moving forward? Well, that's a, that's a really good question, and one of the, the concerns or risks with respect to opening up negotiations is the agreement maybe can be improved, but um, it's a possibility that if the Trump administration doesn't think that um, Canada and Mexico are going along with, the, with the, the direction that we think that the talk should go, they may say, well, we'll, we'll just pull out of NAFTA entirely and we'll be left with nothing. I, I don't think that's going to happen, but nobody knows for sure. Um, certainly, we have a, a, a good trade relationship with, with our North American trading partners. One thing that I think is really interesting and that has changed since 1994 is that fewer and fewer things are entirely made in the United States. And mm-hmm. I don't see that necessarily as a bad thing, because they're made of parts and components from, from all over the world. So you buy a car, you have parts from the U.S., maybe it's assembled in Mexico, or, or, or vice versa. Um, and since NAFTA took effect, we have about, uh, we've had an 80% increase in U.S. manufacturing output. We've got about 30 million new jobs that have been created in the United States. It's not all because of NAFTA. 
Um, but we've continued to move in the right direction economically. We could do a whole lot better. And at one point, I wanted to be sure and not forget to make it. A lot of things that get blamed on trade are a result of problems created in, in, in Washington, D.C., where there's too many regulations mm-hmm. or corporate tax rates that are among the highest in the world. And if, if we take care of some of those issues, a lot of the economic problems that get blamed on trade, I think, would, would take care of themselves. I know there's been a lot of pushback, but do you see efforts to do just that, to address those impediments that will make uh, trade better in the United States or manufacturing better in the United States, apart from uh, NAFTA and other uh, agreements like it? Well, I think there has been a lot of progress on, on the regulatory front. Anything we can do to make it easier to start a small businesses and then help them grow into to big businesses um, will be will be helpful. But it's just so hard to get anything done, um, anything through Congress. There's so much gridlock um, that in marginal improvements, anything we get would be a step in the right direction. Yeah. Um, and the healthcare debate, no matter what side of it you're on, um, looking at what's happened in the last few days, I think is. Uh, illustrates how hard it is to get changes done here in D.C. The, the, the interesting thing with NAFTA, there are two ways to go. We could just blow up the agreement and start over, or we could try and improve it and make it better. Uh, and the administration is kind of trying to satisfy both camps, people who think it really is a bad deal and needs to be redone, and those who think, well, I had some, some good results and we just need to improve it and modernize it. So, um, they're, they're, as they negotiate with Mexico and Canada, those are some of the problems that they have to wrestle with. Um, one of the points you make is that uh, you can advance the objective of the uh, of the administration by keeping the parts of NAFTA that work. What are the areas that ought to be kept that uh, the administration, or at least the president, initially had seemed to be willing to to scrap altogether? And do you see a recognition on on their part um, that those parts, uh, those elements, ought to be retained? Well, the most important are probably uh, definitely related to trade barriers between U.S., Canada, and Mexico, and, and, and taking those taxes down to zero so that we can sell our products more easily and that we can afford to buy products from Canada and Mexico more easily. NAFTA, a lot of people associate it with President Clinton because it was approved when President Clinton was um, was president, and there was a, a televised debate on Larry King at the time between Al Gore and, and Ross Perot over whether there would be a giant sucking sound of jobs mm-hmm. leaving the country or not. But the idea actually originated with President Reagan in 1979, where, where he proposed a North American accord that reduced barriers between the three countries. So I think it's been really positive in that in that regard. If we were to throw up new barriers to trade between Canada and the U.S. and, and Mexico, it would, it would make us worse off. And people, although a lot of people are worried about jobs going to Mexico, if we didn't have the opportunity to have those supply chains with America, some companies might be more likely to move to China or, or Asia and uh, we'd have even, even fewer jobs here. I, with respect to the giant sucking sound, since I, I brought it up, I, I really should point out that we have much more foreign investment coming into the United States than, than leaving the United States. About 6 million Americans work for foreign-owned companies. And those are the kinds of things we need to encourage. Yeah. Now, I mentioned at the top of our conversation that we're fewer than uh, 30 days away from the renegotiation, if you will, of the um, North American Free Trade Agreement. What does that look like? And what ultimately is 
uh, is the goal apart from the uh, the elements that the White House is opposed? Well, there are two things that really drive the negotiations. One is Congress has something called trade promotion authority, where they've got uh, lists of objectives for U.S. trade negotiators. And then the U.S. administration, um, the USTR, just released its specific uh, priorities for negotiations, but we're still waiting to see exactly what direction Canada and Mexico want to go, whether they're on the same page with the United States. And, and in many cases, they may be. They've We've already had discussions through the Trans-Pacific Partnership and just as a result of our economic relationships. So so there might be some easy improvements that could be made uh, to NAFTA. The one thing that, that I really hope is that the United States will push for more economic freedom in the negotiations and, and more opportunity. We publish at Heritage something called the Index of Economic Freedom, where we rank about 180 countries around the world. And, and those countries that have the most freedom are the most prosperous. And the United States is no longer in the top 10 yeah. freest countries in the world. Uh, and the countries that have the least economic freedom are the least prosperous. So this is an opportunity for us to push for more economic opportunity and freedom, not just in Canada and Mexico, but, but right here in the United States. Absolutely. Well, Brian Riley, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. I hope we can follow up uh, as these negotiations move forward. Look forward to it. Again, uh, Brian Riley is a J. Van Andel Senior Policy Analyst in Trade Policy at the Center for Free Markets and Regulatory Reform. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. We've been following the case of Charlie Gard. He's the 11-month-old child in the U.K. Uh, who is subject to a decision made by the court as to whether or not the boy will be permitted to seek uh, non-traditional um, advanced treatment or if he will be uh, removed from the systems that are supporting his life. Well, we learned today that Charlie Gard's parents are optimistic after um, a series of tests were conducted by a U.S. neurosurgeon considering uh, experimental treatment. Now, this uh, neurosurgeon from the United States went to the U.K. after uh, talking with uh, those physicians in the U.K. that have been treating him uh, to determine whether or not he is a likely candidate to experience any improvement with the uh, cutting-edge treatment that he has applied to others with similar situations, perhaps not as uh, as badly affected as uh, Charlie Gard, we're being told. Well, the parents discovered the baby's uh, court-appointed lawyer, they uh, discovered just recently, is head of a charity that backs assisted suicide, not exactly the objective representative of their son's interests. So they are very frustrated and angered by that. Again, uh, Charlie Gard's parents discovering that the baby's court-appointed lawyer, this is the person that is representing the interests of the child, is head of a charity that backs assisted suicide. William McGurn, writing on the uh, case in the Wall Street Journal, says this, The child cannot see, cannot hear, and suffers from a genetic disorder for which there is no cure. Yet he has exposed the great fault line between the post-Christian West and its past. For most of history, men and women have regarded suffering as part of life. But as medicine tames once deadly afflictions and the idea of some larger meaning to the cosmos wanes, suffering comes to appear less as a part of the natural order than an intolerable anomaly. Again, uh, writing for the Wall Street Journal, William McGurn. Uh, what we understand is happening at this point is the U.S. neurosurgeon is uh, uh, talking with doctors there, examining the child to determine whether or not he's a likely candidate to experience 
uh, some improvement and then to try to quantify the the possibility of improvement in his condition because those who are appointed by the court to represent him, both the hospital and a guardian that is legally responsible for making decisions on behalf of the child rather than his parents, um, they have uh, suggested, they have said that the child should be removed from his ventilator and be allowed to die because life in his condition, he's not in pain, he's not in discomfort, but life in the absence of um, many of the things that uh, most of us enjoy, is not life worth living. So the quality of his life is the determinant from their perspective as to whether or not he should be eligible to continue to breathe. Um, the parents, as you might recall, have been advocating for their son, saying that they have the financial resources, they have the uh, facilities that are available in more than one location, You even have lawmakers in the United States making special accommodation that would allow he and his parents to come to the United States to seek treatment. So the the question of whether or not allowing Charlie Gard to receive treatment would be a burden on the state is uh, is not uh, a question that applies any longer. The parents have also been able to raise millions of dollars for his support. Uh, So um, they are arguing that uh, given the fact that they have other options uh, experimental treatments, they ought to be permitted as his parents to remove him from the care at the UK to the United States or to Italy to get the care that may uh, make all the difference in the world uh, for this 11-month-old. So that is uh, sort of hanging in the balance, and we're going to continue to follow this story. I know many people have been praying. There's been quite a significant demonstration in the UK over uh, the future of this little boy, uh, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll we'll let you know what the doctors ultimately decide. My understanding is as soon as uh, this collaboration is completed, there'll be a recommendation made, and the judge, if he is impressed uh, by the recommendation, may say Charlie is eligible for this experimental treatment and he will be released from our care, or he will say we're going to uphold the earlier decision and Charlie Gard will be um, well permitted, forced, allowed uh, to die um, in uh, opposition to his parents' wishes. So that is the status of Charlie Gard at this point. Well, tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Gina Delfonso. She's the author of One by One, Welcoming the Singles in Your Church. And if you've ever been an adult uh, who is unmarried or a single parent, you know the challenges of being a part of a church community that is not necessarily accommodating to or welcoming of Singles. We're going to talk about uh, how is the body of Christ reflecting various aspects of the work that he's called us to do in his kingdom, how we can be a community of people uh, who are married and unmarried or formerly married uh, in a way that's honoring to Christ and nurturing and edifying to the members of the body. So that will be our uh, guest on Wednesday. We're still working on uh, Thursday. And then, of course, on Friday, we will lighten things up. I want to uh, let those of you know who joined the program in the 5 o'clock hour that I had an opportunity to speak with uh, Austin Roos in the 4 o'clock hour. He's written a very interesting book, and it goes to the heart of some of what we talked about uh, this hour. But the book is titled Fake Science, and he um, points to the idea that science is uh, pointed to uh, as an objective truth by which all standards should be set unless it's inconvenient, in which case science is no longer uh, the the uh, the marker by which we determine what course the culture ought to take or government or 
uh, education and so on. The book is called Fake Science, Exposing the Left's Skewed Statistics, Fuzzy Facts and Dodgy Data. You can l- listen to that on our uh, podcast at kpdq.com. Look for the Georgine Rice Show and there you'll see the podcast for this program uh, as well as uh, previous programs. And we try to keep that up to date as much as possible and uh, would encourage you to, to take a listen on that. We also talked with Ed Heiselmeyer, um, who's a senior research fellow on the status of the Senate health care bill and what needs to happen next. I think there's a lot of frustration uh, about the fact that uh, the GOP has not been able to move forward on what for seven years they said was a priority. They passed uh, one piece of legislation after another saying that we want to repeal and replace Obamacare. And once they had the authority, the opportunity, they have failed to to do just that. And I know a lot of people are discouraged and scratching their heads as to why after seven years there wasn't something already in place that it was broad, that had broad agreement. Um, we talked about that. And if you'd, you'd like to uh, perhaps gain a little more insight into what's happened and what's uh, going to happen next and whether or not a whole raft of other initiatives, uh, tax reform and so on, uh, must wait until uh, health care reform uh, is passed. Well, we talked about that with uh, Ed Heiselmeyer. So you can check that out on the uh, on the podcast as well. All right. Well, we are just about out of time. I want to thank uh, Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blind for producing. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. It's um, it's been a uh, it's been an interesting season for uh, for me. I I think I've uh, mentioned a few times that my husband, Dan Rice, has been a bit uh, under the weather with an infection in his heart valve. We spent much of the weekend well Saturday uh, in ER trying to. uh, determine if uh, there were complications associated with his uh, with his treatment. Um, and uh, sitting in ER can be a bit of a challenge because everything moves at a snail's pace. We were uh, so grateful that they didn't discover that the complication was life-threatening and that while the symptoms have continued, uh, they weren't able to see any serious uh, problem. We were concerned about embolism or blood clots. And um, he's he's resting at home. But I say all of that to say that it's been an interesting season for me trying to manage his care, uh, continue to provide for my mom and her care, uh, do my job here and cover the issues and subjects that I believe are of interest to you. Uh, and I appreciate uh, spending the afternoon and, and talking about the things that are uh, are important and um, just, uh, I, I think, stepping away and uh, having a bit of a distraction from some other uh, concerns as well. So I do appreciate your making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day, and I appreciate the accommodations that both Clark and James have made to make it possible for me to keep all the uh, the plates spinning or all the balls in the air uh, that have um, added a little bit of, of stress to uh, to the day. So uh, anyway, appreciate your joining us. Hope you'll uh, join us here tomorrow. Again, my guest will be uh, Gina Delfonso, one by one, welcoming the singles in your church. Have a great evening. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.